Hello, everyone, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It is Connor here. And Gabe. And we have lots of emails, many, many emails. We're going to go through a couple of them now. Gabe, you've got one in your hand. Yeah, this is Phil Thompson. BSc, what does that mean? That he's, a, he's got his bachelor? Uh, in science, in yeah. In sciences? Mm-hmm. Wow. On a small island in Nova... Sh- small island in Nova Scotia. I love listening to Science Unscripted from Germany at 4 a.m. No better way to be reminded of five years of university in the 70s studying engineering, medicine, psychology, and philosophy. Wow. Listening to your unscripted discussions first thing in the morning is an excellent companion to scrambled eggs with cheddar cheese (laughs) and freshly brewed coffee. Yum. Just like a fourth-year seminar course. Thanks, Phil Thompson. I, I, thank you, Phil. Thank you. I can feel that email. I, I feel like I'm in your kitchen looking out at the water, <sighs> the smell of scrambled eggs. Well, well I mean, yeah. And, and my voice on the radio, that doesn't make sense. That's weird. Uh, thank you for that. It feels great to be a companion to scrambled eggs. You're right about that. It does. What do we got? Yeah, well, We've got more emails, but I guess no time to read them? No, we don't. Okay, why don't your we start, study or my study why first? Why don't we start with yours? Okay, so this is about fecal incontinence, uh, a fancy word for losing, losing stool. You not being able to control when not being able when to and control your you bowel movements. So, the definition of it here: this these were Chinese researchers in Beijing looking at data from the United States, uh, data from thirteen thousand four hundred and eighty people. And the definition of fecal incontinence was once a month losing stool in solid, liquid, or mucus form. Once a month, then you have fecal incontinence, and they were looking at that in conjunction with suicidal ideation and that's not yeah, there that's... has never been a study looking into whether people who have fecal incontinence think about ending their life I... never has that happened now it's happened and it's uh, yeah the results are are striking if especially for people 45 years and older so that 13,000 people that they were looking at uh, spanned from age 20 up between 20 and 45 there's no real Association. So people who have fecal incontinence don't necessarily have suicidal ideation. Hmm. From the age of 45 up, it's 1.6 times more likely, if you have fecal incontinence, that you're thinking about suicide. 60% more likely. That's, an in, that, that's a very significant increase. And probably, if, if I can go sideways for a second here, probably... <laughs> would be replicated or you would see similar results for other health problems. I, I'd never really thought about it that way, especially with fecal incontinence, but the idea that your your body is just not working the way it should, and especially when it's an, an I was going to say embarrassing, mortifying, publicly shameful, unfortunately, um, yeah. issue, then, then of course, yeah. Let me just share with you real quick the reason why you mentioned this study to me. Yeah, I'd only seen the, the headline, yeah. yeah. And I... A few years back, I was in Beaver Dam, where, where my parents live, where I grew up, and um, I forget the the specifics of the of of how it happened. But my my dad's neighbor, I'm not going to mention his name here, was over, and someone was laughing about uh, an incident where someone pooped their pants. And I said, I don't know why I said it. I said, well, you know, that happens to people. You know, that's something that maybe it's not that funny. What if? What if he couldn't control it? And this neighbor heard me say that. And a few hours later, uh, I think when he was heading home or saw me late, around the house later on, came up to me and said, I really, really appreciated what you said before. Um, 
he didn't say that he suffers from this. I'm assuming that's that's why. Or, or someone he but knows. But it was that look you could see in his eyes that that there's suffering behind by, behind that statement. You know, when something gets really real, and you almost get goosebumps when you hear someone um, try to express that. That that's that's why when you when we were talking about the study this week, I remembered that moment. It was a very it made a strong impression on me. And yeah, this this data. I mean, the, the conclusion of this is that people who, if you're 45 years or 50 or 60 or 65, whatever, and you have this condition, get get checked for your mental health, because yeah, 1.60 percent more likely that you're thinking about ending your life. That's but, pretty serious. Yeah, serious and very very unexpected for me, I guess. But it makes perfect sense now that I know it. I just never. Never, ever thought about it. Um, sticking to that, or, or kind of similarly, I guess the study that I looked into uh, was somewhat thematically connected to what you were just talking about. And this was one um, dealing fundamentally with, with vasopressin deficiency. Have you ever heard of vasopressin? Never. First, first time in my life, I've never. never heard of it. Um, vasopressin is a hormone produced in the same part of your brain that makes um, oxytocin. Okay, and also uh, uh, released yep. in in the same part of the brain, the posterior pituitary. And um, if you have a vasopressin deficiency, it means your body's just not making that that hormone. And if you don't have vasopressin, if it's just absent from your body, um, your kidneys can't concentrate urine, and so it just flushes it out with way too much water. You have to go to the restroom all the time, and you have to drink ten liters of water at least per day. That's a lot wow. of water to be chugging. This is a miserable situation for people yeah. and the good news is that it's it's treatable and so you can get either through a pill form or through nasal spray mm -hmm. you can get vasopressin injected but then researchers were noticing well wait the people who've had this treatment they're suffering from something that seems completely unrelated but it must be connected to the vasopressin namely emotional regulation or emotional awareness issues anxiety and so kind of social interaction Be problems. Because of the other affliction? Or? No, it wasn't vasopressin. So you'll remember earlier I said that vasopressin is made in the same part of the brain. The pituitary gland, right? Or it's released through the pituitary, but the hypothalamus makes vasopressin. It also makes oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And the molecule, I've, I've got pictures of it, the mo those two molecules, the vasopressin and the oxytocin, are really, really, really similar. And so these researchers in Switzerland were like, huh, what if the people whose brains can't make vasopressin yeah. also can't make oxytocin? So they got two different deficiencies going on. Two at the same time. And yeah. if you don't have the oxy oxytocin, which is the social bonding hormone, um, but is also connected to all sorts of things, uh, contractions during pregnancy, uh, milk production, does a lot of things in the human body. Yeah, one of those feel-good uh, neurotransmitters. Huh? Yeah. Um, so what if that is the case? And if we want to figure that out, how do we figure that out? And this is where I think the University of Basel and the University Hospital of Basel under Miriam Christ Crane did something pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. They gave everyone MDMA. Ooh. They gave them ecstasy. Yeah. And that sounds bizarre. In purest form. Yeah, yeah it sounds bizarre. Uh, <laughs> but the reason for doing that is what that drug does to your brain is it says basically... Forces oxytocin? Yeah. yeah. Big dump. It's time to let... It goes... Talks to the pituitary gland yeah. and says, dump it all out. Yeah. Right? So for somebody whose brain can make oxytocin, mm -hmm. they start getting these pro-social feelings, lots of empathy. We've all seen, whatever, the, the videos, the movies, the TV shows. Oh, yeah. And in those cases... 
they could then measure the researchers or the, the doctors at the Department of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism. They could measure that in healthy people, so they have no issues with vasopressin or anything like Got that. It, yeah. Healthy people. Spike in oxytocin. Yeah, by 8.5 times. Okay. For the people who had the vasopressin deficiency. Yeah. No change. Nothing. Nothing, because their brains aren't making oxytocin. And this is leading to the host of other problems that they're suffering in addition to the other in initial problem. Hmm. I Again, really, really clever medical experiment or thought process on this one. And what they say at, at the end of it is basically, yeah, no one had looked into it this way before. And it's very possible now that we can look at therapies to help people who are having this issue with, with vasopressin and having to go to the restroom a lot, and then also get some oxytocin treatments to deal with the other effects of what their brains are not producing. Yeah, and possibly opening doors for other neurotransmitter deficiencies or other neuro yeah, degeneration issues for therapies. I didn't look. <laughs> in, it, what I did look into, and this was a negative surprise for me, was uh, it was a Nature publication from 2022 on how and where we're using oxytocin therapeutically. How often do you go into the doctor's office and they say, hey, here's a pill, take some oxytocin. Correct me if I'm wrong, doctors out there who are listening, I know we have quite a few. Uh, it seems much more difficult than I'd expected. I'm just going to quote it here. Uh, it says, research has yet to uncover precisely how to manipulate this system, meaning the whole oxytocin production system, for clinical benefit. Moreover, inconsistent use of standardized and validated measurement methodologies. I was talking how, about how they measured it, including the design and study of hormone secretion and biochemical assays present unresolved challenges. Yeah. It looks, based on what I'm reading here, like, um, it, yeah, it's not very common. Well, there is current research looking into the use of MDMA for definitely depression, possibly even anxiety. Right, right. which is, which would cause... A little bit different, but that, 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 it, yeah, if you're, if that you're, neurotransmitter oxytocin is a feel-good, happy right, right. hormone. And if your brain is capable of producing it in the first place, then that might work for you if you suffer a vasopressin deficiency um, and don't have this antidiuretic hormone in your body in the first place, then such a therapy wouldn't help you. Yeah, I, I just thought, I just thought it was fascinating because that went in a couple different directions that I didn't expect it. Yeah. Especially the giving giving these patients ecstasy. What? Okay. Yeah. Hey doc, can I have some MDMA for my uh, for my diabetes? <laughs> oh, yeah, should right. I, yeah. Should I, should I try that? I got an appointment next Wednesday. So. At your local at your G, with your GP? Good luck with that one. If you do, let's tell everyone about it, please. <laughs> yeah, that's it for now. If you have anything to say on this including aspects of oxytocin, that I'm not aware of, uh, please let us know. SUADW.com. Science.